0: We're excited to start a new sermon series this morning. We're going to start the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, if you would open to Matthew chapter 1. And I thought that one of the greatest gifts I could give just immediately getting back is to not have one of our scripture readers have to read the first 17 verses of Matthew 1. So to our scripture readers, this is my gift to you. I am going to take a shot at it. But Matthew 1, 1 through 17, if you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen behind me. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, that's Bathsheba. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad. And Abiad, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Acham. And Acham, the father of Eliad. And Eliad, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Mathan and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations generations. That's quite a family tree right there. Over sabbatical, uh, Kim and I were reminded uh, that we have fame in our ancestry. My dad reminded me several times when we were up there visiting uh, that, that we have an ancestor named Gabby Hayes, who was a famous actor in the 1920s and 1930s. He starred in several Western movies. And on Kim's side, her ancestry is, is connected to the non-Saman Indian tribe, the tribe from which Pocahontas came from. So it's possible that one of Kim's ancestors is Pocahontas. Now, generally speaking, ancestry can tell you something about yourself. When it comes to my ancestry uh, and Gabby Hayes, I don't know quite what that means because I have zero acting skills. But when it comes to Pocahontas, I would say definitely that possibility beauty was definitely handed down. Oh, you can say that. but there's a fascination with Ancestry. It's the reason why Ancestry.com is so popular. That's that online resource where you can go and, and find your family tree and discover things about where you came from and who you are. Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy that is all about the ancestry of Jesus Christ. It's the family tree of Jesus Christ. Now, with any article, uh, chapter of a book, the introduction is critical, right? Because the introduction is going to tell you what this book is going to be about. And that's exactly what Matthew is doing here. He is introducing the gospel to say something very profound about what this gospel is going to be about and what the purpose of it is. Now, what's difficult is he starts with a genealogy Most of us yawn at a genealogy. In fact, if you're reading through the gospel of Matthew, you would probably race through the first 17 verses or skip them entirely and pick up at verse 18 that speaks about the birth of Jesus Christ. But this genealogy is powerful. It's powerful and it speaks into what Matthew is gonna gonna explain and unfold throughout his gospel. the first two phrases in verse one speak volumes. The first phrase, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That word book is used as the title of the book of Genesis in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The whole phrase, the book of the genealogy, that whole phrase is in the Greek translation of Genesis 2-4 that's talking about the creation account. The word for genealogy is where we get the word Genesis. So Matthew comes out of the gate saying, this is new Genesis. This is new creation in Jesus Christ. Now the second phrase, son of David, Matthew uses the name of King David 17 times in his gospel, more than any other book in the New Testament. He uses the phrase son of David nine times, where Mark and Luke use it three times and no other book in the New Testament uses that phrase. On top of that, the three sets of 14 generations that verse 17 uh, emphasizes. You say, why is it three sets of 14? What's the significance of 14? Well, the numbers that are associated with the letters of David's name in Hebrew add up to 14. So Matthew is launching his gospel with clear and very purposeful connections to David, you say, why is he doing that? Because he is beginning by stating the truth that Jesus Christ is the true king. And on top of that, when in Matthew's gospel, when he uses that phrase, son of David, most frequently it is used when people are coming to Jesus for help. So you put that together and what Matthew's saying at the outset is Jesus Christ is the true king who has come to help his people. Now, what kind of king is he? And how does he help you? Well, this genealogy is gonna explain. First, he's the king who transforms you. There are names in this genealogy that are shocking because they are names of notorious sinners. Let's begin with verse two. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Now Judah and his brothers, Jacob had 12 sons. We we become acquainted with those brothers in the Joseph story in Genesis. Judah was the brother who spearheaded selling his younger brother, Joseph, into slavery for selfish gain. Then we learn in Genesis 38, in Genesis 38, that Judah has an incestuous relationship with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And through that relationship, Tamar becomes pregnant. Now, Judah did not know because Tamar was disguised as a prostitute. But when he finds out later that Tamar had been immoral and was pregnant, He was calling for her to be burned to death. Judah was a selfish and despicable man. But as we read in Genesis 38, when he found out that he was the father of that child, he began to be humbled, such that by the end of the story of the Joseph story in Genesis, Judah is the one that sacrifices his life for his younger brother, Benjamin. He goes from being the man who sells his brother into slavery for selfish gain, to placing himself in slavery so that his younger brother, Benjamin, could be freed. Radical transformation. And then we learn at the end of Genesis, in Genesis 49, when Jacob is is pronouncing a blessing over his 12 sons, He says of Judah, the scepter will not depart from Judah, meaning that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would come through the line of Judah. Now you say, why Judah? Why not one of the other 12 brothers? Why does the line of Christ come through Judah? Well, one of the reasons I believe is because the gospel is not for perfect, sinless people. The gospel is for sinners who are being transformed and changed by grace. And that is the story of Judah. And Jesus comes from his line. This theme of transformation continues. Look at the four women in this genealogy in verses three to six Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. That's the wife of Uriah. These are all Gentiles. They're all outsiders. In fact, Ruth was a Moabite. And Deuteronomy 23 says that Moabites are to be excluded from the congregation of Israel. And yet she was welcomed in by the grace of God. Then you've got Tamar. Tamar is the one who had questionable moral reputation, enticed her father-in-law into an incestuous relationship. Now I don't have time to explain it all, but let me just say, that Tamar did that out of a courageous act of faith. She was being transformed. Then you have Rahab the prostitute. Rahab is enfolded into the family of God, comes to trust in the God of Israel and is changed. And of course, Bathsheba, the woman who committed adultery with King David, is the woman who finds herself in the line of Jesus in his family tree. And let me just speak to, to one more powerful picture of transformation in this, gene, in this genealogy. Many have struggled with the fact that there's three sets of 14 generations, but the last set only has 13. And so many have, have wrestled with, why, is it, why does the last one only have 13. There's been a number of reasons offered, but one that I believe is very plausible and it absolutely ties in with this theme of transformation in the genealogy is this. Jeconiah is spoken of at the end of verse 11, and then Jeconiah begins another set of 14 in verse 12. So Jeconiah ends the set of 14 at verse 11, and then Jeconiah starts the set of 14 in verse 12. Now, typically, you wouldn't count a person twice when you're, when you're doing these generations. But some have argued that Matthew purposefully counts Jeconiah twice. And here's why. The Jeconiah that is described at the end of verse 11, this is, is, is when the exile to Babylon is happening, this is the beginning of dark times the exile of Babylon. And he presents Jeconiah as cursed, childless, and a deported king. That was Jeconiah's situation at the end of 11. But then in verse 12, we see this is the verse 12 is the return from exile. There's light coming. And in verse 12, Jeconiah at this point is the one who was released from prison, restored, and who became the father of many. So it's almost like you have two different people, the old Jeconiah and the transformed Jeconiah. And so Matthew counts him twice because that's the theme of this genealogy. And isn't that the truth of the gospel? The old is gone, the new has come, a new creation in Christ. Many of you have a testimony. I'm a different person post-Christ than I was pre-Christ. I'm not perfect, but I am a different person. That's the gospel. It's a gospel of transformation, of change. If you've ever been out to Mount Rushmore in South Dakota, you've seen this massive sculpture of four U.S. presidents on the side of a mountain. One of the interesting facts about Mount Rushmore is that it's an unfinished sculpture. Each president was meant to have a carved body. And when you look at the replica of what, it, what was meant to be in the full finished sculpture, you see when you look at the actual Mount Rushmore, what could have been. It's unfinished. You and I are un finished sculptures. We are blocks of stone that has a hard edge that needs to be trimmed off. We're blocks of stone that has a rough part that needs to be smoothed out. And unlike Mount Rushmore, which is an unfinished sculpture that has been abandoned and remains unfinished, Jesus Christ will not abandon you until the transformation into his perfect image is finished. He will finish what he started in you. And what that means is that in every situation, every circumstance, every season of suffering, Every season of joy, every betrayal, every tragedy, in all of it, you are being changed. And you are being transformed by King Jesus. Now, one of the reasons. One of the predominant reasons behind relational tension and relational fracture is treating, whether this is husband wife, parent child, boss employee, friend friend, is treating another person as if they are a finished sculpture or expecting them to behave and act as if they are a finished sculpture. And I would say that this is, this is not necessarily conscious. A lot of times when we have this, that's an unconscious expectation that we carry in our relationships. And what it does is if you carry that expectation that someone else is a finished sculpture or should be behaving as though they're a finished sculpture, pride will grow. And as pride grows, you will find yourself constantly disappointed with people, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your child, friend, coworker, colleague, constantly disappointed. You'll begin to lose patience when they mess up because finished sculptures should look perfect and trim and complete. And then what'll develop is this low level of just anger. In bitterness, and frustration to this person who you have higher expectations for. And in that pride, you forget that you're an unfinished sculpture. If you firmly believed that in everything God was changing you and those around you, how would it affect the way you treat yourself and you treat those around you. Because the truth is, Romans 8:28, all things, God is at work, and those who love him. Who is King Jesus, and how does he help you? Well, first, he's the king who transforms you. Second, he is the king who honors you. Verse three. Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. Hezron and Ram, who are they? We have no idea. This is the only time they show up in the Bible. They show up nowhere else. I mean, all these other kings, we have history in the Old Testament. Hezron and Ram don't show up anywhere. And yet they find themselves in the genealogy of Jesus. I believe Matthew inserted them with great purpose. Because so many people never make the headlines, metaphorically speaking. So many people feel obscure unimportant. Even the Apostle Paul, who we would say was not an obscure figure in the first century nor an unimportant figure in the first century. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 9. He says, we are treated as unknown and yet well known. Unknown in this world, but well-known by God. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 12, 22 through 24, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, giving greater honor to the obscure, the seemingly unimportant, Bill Broadhurst was running in the Omaha, Nebraska Pepsi 10K, a race of 6.2 miles. Broadhurst was a Christian, but he was slowed by a brain aneurysm he suffered as a young man that left most of his left side of his body paralyzed. But he was committed to running this race and finishing it, and especially because his hero, Bill Rogers, was running in the race. Bill was a great runner. And he finished this 6.2 mile race in just over 29 minutes. Now you do the math, that's fast. Other runners finished between like 30 and 50 minutes. The joggers finished between like 60 and 70 minutes. And then, Well past that was Bill Broadhurst. As he ran so far behind, it got to the point where people would, kids would pass him or see him and say, hey, mister, you missed a good race. He said two hours into the race, his his left side was growing more and more numb. The pain was ratcheting up. He thought, "I, I can't finish this race After two hours, the cars were back in the streets. He had trouble crossing intersections. At one point, a policeman had to stop traffic and and help him cross. A woman handed him a a bottle of water. After two hours and 20 minutes, he said he was about to just stop because the pain was so great. But then he saw the end. And yet as he saw the end, he became even more discouraged. They had taken the banner down. The finish line was torn down. Everybody was gone. But he was so close, so he kept running. And as he got to the finish line, out of the alleyway comes Bill Rogers with a gang of people. And they welcomed him, ushered him across the finish line, And it was there that Bill Rogers took off the gold medal. He he had won the race and he put it around the neck of Bill Broadhurst. One day, as Matthew talks about later in his gospel, it will become evident that the last will be first and the first last. Mothers, when your hands are covered in poop from the third blowout diaper of the morning, when you have to leave the grocery store because your baby is screaming and crying and you can't even finish shopping, when you only can muster up enough energy to put a couple boxes of cereal out for dinner, and when you find yourself on your couch in a ball of tears thinking to yourself, what am I doing? Does any of this matter? Does anyone see me? And for those of you that would give anything to have dirty hands from a diaper change, and for those of you that would give anything to have to leave the grocery store because of a screaming child. And that maybe you're asking the same questions. What am I doing? Does any of this matter? Does anybody see me in my pain? Be reminded from these two obscure people in the genealogy of Jesus that King Jesus sees you. And he honors you. And he reminds you that your life is significant in his plan to bring redemption and salvation to this world. When you feel insignificant, obscure, and unimportant, there's only one that can bestow the honor on your heart that you are craving. And it's nothing or no one in this world, it is King Jesus. And when you are convinced and you know that you are seen by Jesus, then you begin to see others and in their insignificance and in their obscurity and their pain. Who is Jesus? He's the king who transforms you. He's the king who honors you. And finally, he's the king who protects you. So far we've seen there's notorious sinners in this genealogy. There's obscure people in this genealogy, but there's also some very evil and wicked people in this genealogy. To name a few, verses eight to 10, Joram, in verse 8, who was king over Judah, was a wicked king. He killed his brothers to eliminate any potential threat to his reign. He married the idolatrous King Ahab's daughter and led the way in worshiping false gods in Judah. Then you've got, in verse 9, King Ahaz, We learn about Ahaz in 2 Kings 16.3. King Ahaz even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. What this is referring to is the pagan god Molech was worshiped in this way. They would heat up a metal statue of the God until it was red hot. hot, And they would put babies on the hands. It was pure wickedness, pure evil. In verse 10, King Amos was just as wicked. You say, well, wait a minute. How do these wicked kings And why do they make it into the genealogy of Jesus? What's the significance here? It's this, that wickedness, as awful as it may get, can never thwart the plans and purposes of God. Never. And I would take it a step further that God even uses wickedness in his sovereignty. We have examples throughout the Old Testament to accomplish his plans and purposes. These wicked kings are in the genealogy of Jesus to give you assurance that King Jesus protects you. Now by that, that does not mean that there is no evil or no wickedness that will ever touch you. But what it does mean is that when evil or wickedness touches you, it only touches you after it has first passed through the hands of God. We see that in the book of Job. Job was a man who endured horrific suffering. And it says that Satan was given permission by God to afflict Job. And anything that God allows through his hands into your life can only conform to his promise in Romans eight twenty-eight. And we know that for those who love God, all things, not just some, not just the good, but all things work together for good. You know, this can be a hard pill to swallow for some of you that maybe have been touched by significant evil or wickedness. It can be a hard pill to swallow to think, wow, this first passed through God's hands. Is he really good? Can he be good if this passed through his hands? I would just say the, the alternative is even harder to swallow that if evil or wickedness can touch you without passing through the hands of God, then that brings on several problems. The first being that it would be hard to leave your house in the morning and to avoid a life of anxiety and fear, knowing that wicked is on the loose. Second, if you believe that wickedness and evil can touch you without first passing through the hand of God, then what you're tempted to do is to take control and try to get rid of it. Take vengeance, wrath, whatever it is to get rid of it, right? And if you can't get rid of it, then you can begin to start ignoring it or pretending it's not real and kind of living in this alternate reality. The sovereignty of God and the fact that evil and wickedness passes first through his hands is a tremendous, tremendous comfort for the believer. Maybe you remember this as a child. Or more likely, you probably remember this as a parent when you took your child to swim lessons for the first time. But what what happens? You take your child to swim lessons, and the swim instructor typically at some point early on teaches your child how to float. And she says, okay, keep your ears in the water and your belly button out of the water. And as she's doing that, you know, her hands are on the back, right? So the child feels supported. But then inevitably she'll say something like this. Now, I'm going to count to two. And when I get to two, you're no longer going to feel my hands, but they'll be there. Now, when the swim instructor gets to two, and that child doesn't feel the hands on the back anymore, what does your child do? Panic, right? Panic, throw their knees up into their chin, into a ball and drop all their weight into the swim instructor's hands in the water. Almost all people can float if they assume a posture of rest. But when people think they're gonna sink, they don't maintain that posture very long. The life of faith, of trust in Jesus Christ is a posture of rest. It's a posture of rest. And yet if we're honest, we're terrified by the life of faith because we need to feel the support of an impeccable record or a spotless reputation. We're terrified by the life of faith because we need to feel human approval and and worldly accolades and worldly significance. We're terrified by a life of faith because we need to feel a comfortable affliction-free life. When you sin and you sin to such a degree that it begins to threaten your polished image or your spotless reputation, what do you do? you really have two options. You either panic and get defensive or you rest in King Jesus' abundant grace, forgiveness, and promise to transform you. When you feel obscure or insignificant, what do you do when you feel that way? Well, you either panic and start hunting and fishing for affirmation or you rest in King Jesus bestowing honor on you. And when evil and wickedness encroaches upon your life, you either panic and take control to get rid of it, or you rest in King Jesus' protection and his promise that he uses all things to change you, to transform you into his perfect image. The genealogy of Jesus Christ is about God's faithful track record. A list of notorious sinners, obscure and unimportant people, wicked and evil people, all of it is crashing in this family tree and it ends with King Jesus being victorious. God's track record is perfect. Galatians 3.7, going back to verse one in the genealogy, son of Abraham, it's one of the phrases. Galatians 3.7 says, those of faith, those who trust in Christ are the sons of Abraham. Meaning that upon trusting in Christ, you become a part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And therefore you have the assurance Of God's perfect track record to complete in you what He has started. Let's pray. Father, when we read the genealogy of Christ, I think we expect to just read a a very sanitized version of all the best, the best of the Old Testament that are picked out to show perfection and cleanliness and all of that. And yet we read this genealogy and it is littered with notorious sinners, with obscure people, with even evil and wicked people. And I think we see now, Father, why it is so comforting and reassuring to people like us who are notorious sinners who feel obscure and insignificant and purposeless at times in this world and those of us who have faced evil and wickedness. And yet the end of the genealogy is the one who went to the cross and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and has seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and who is coming back again Father, thank you. Thank you for this assurance, this comfort, and this hope for all of us who are living in a very difficult world. And would you, Father, would you bring our hearts now to a place of responding with joyful singing and praise for who you are, what you've done, and what you are doing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.